Our scripture reading takes place in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. If you're using a pew Bible, that'll be page 839 on the bottom right. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Why have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Thank you, Daniel. And I uh, encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Mark 4 as we pray together and study from it this morning. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we open Mark 4 this morning, as we read about your son speaking a word of peace to a ferocious storm, and then read that the storm actually listened to him, Lord, may we stand in awe of him alongside the disciples. Use this passage, Lord, to give us a glimpse of the glory of your Son and to help us trust him more. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Back in 2008, I went home to Colorado where I grew up to visit my family. And on my way home from the airport, my brother and I drove into a, a rainstorm. It started out as a light rain, but it got heavier and heavier, and before long, the rain turned into hail. And the hail was falling so hard that it made it hard to see the road in front of us. It was so loud inside the car that my brother and I had to shout at one another if we wanted to say anything. Honestly, it was really scary. We thought about pulling over to just wait it out, but we decided to keep going because we hoped that it wasn't a very big storm and we could get to the other side of it pretty soon. We did make it to the other side of the storm, and before long, the sun was shining, and the dark clouds were only in our rearview mirror. We got to my parents' house, and someone asked us if we had seen the tornado that had been in the area that day. And we didn't know what they were talking about at all. We hadn't seen anything, and we didn't think very much about it. It wasn't until later that night when we were watching the news that we found out that an F3 tornado had swept through the area. It was a mile wide. That's incomprehensible to me. This tornado was a mile wide. It destroyed everything in its path as it moved along for about 25 miles. And it crossed the highway that my brother and I had taken from the airport about 15 minutes after we passed by where it would cross over. It was the most intense weather I've ever seen in my life up close. But at the time, I didn't even really know how intense it actually was. Storms like that, even when we don't see the full scope of them, have a way of reminding us that we are pretty small and pretty helpless in the grand scheme of things. Even if we feel like we have it all together, like we've got control of things, storms or things like them are things that put things in perspective for us. In the passage that we're looking at this morning from Mark 4, the disciples had a similar experience. 
When a storm came that threatened to destroy them, they were reminded that they were pretty small and pretty helpless, and that there are forces in this world that are simply beyond their ability to control. It was a terrifying moment for them when the storm that threatened their lives arrived, and that they realized that there was absolutely nothing that they could do about it. But as fearsome as that storm was, after it was over, the disciples were actually more afraid. Because at the same time that they were reminded of their own helplessness, they got a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And that is something that they were not prepared for. At its heart, I think that's what this passage is all about helping us to see Jesus more clearly, in the same way that the disciples did on that night, specifically that He is sovereign over all things, both storms and calm waters, that He is the source of peace amid the storms that He ordains, and that He is the King over a new and better kingdom than we realize. Even though the disciples knew that there was something special about Jesus, it wasn't until a storm took them by surprise out on the Sea of Galilee that they began to realize that he was more than they had bargained for. This passage begins after a long day of teaching. Jesus has been in a little boat alongside the shore of the Sea of Galilee where there was a crowd that had gathered to hear from him. If you've been with us over the last two weeks, we've been looking at exactly what Jesus had to say to that crowd, and now that day is done, and Jesus tells his disciples in verse 35 that they will sail across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and before long, Jesus is asleep. I understand that. There's something really profound and beautiful about the post-sermon nap. But it's interesting to take note of that here in Mark and in Matthew and Luke's accounts of this same scene, they record the same thing. All three of them specifically mention that Jesus fell asleep, which is not typically the type of incidental detail that the gospel writers all make sure to include. And it gets even more interesting when we realize that this is the only time in any of the gospels that we are specifically told that Jesus slept. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each only mention this one time. And in every case, for each of them, it's right here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There are two reasons why I think that's the case. First is that it highlights a contrast with the disciples. While they are panicking and anxious, Jesus is anything but. He is the opposite. He doesn't panic. He is not anxious. He knows that nothing can harm him apart from the will of his Father, and nothing can take his life unless he himself wills to lay it down. Secondly, the fact that he slept in the boat is a detail that highlights Jesus' humanity for us. It reminds us that he is like us, and that he got tired after a long day teaching in the hot sun. It's a reminder that evidently, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all want us to have in mind, because Jesus is about to do something that is very much not like us. The gospel writers want us to think with wonder about who it is who is catching a nap in this boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, to think about the fact that He is human, like us, but also something so, so much more than that. Because while He's asleep, we read that a violent storm arrives. Storms were pretty common on the Sea of Galilee, evidently, and So that's why fishermen, like some of the disciples who were in this boat, 
would not have been surprised that a storm came or that it was particularly violent. Even though it was called a sea, the Sea of Galilee is really more of a lake and really not even a very big one at that. It's only a few miles across, but it is notorious for its severe weather. It sits about 700 feet below sea level somehow. I don't understand that, but apparently it does. And it's surrounded on, high, surrounded on all sides by high hills. So the Sea of Galilee is subject to sudden changes in the weather that are driven by fast-moving winds. Things can change quickly from peaceful to chaotic in just a few minutes, and apparently that's what happened here. But typically, those storms arrive during the daytime, which is why fishermen, like the disciples who are in this boat, some of them, would have gone out for fishing at nighttime. For Peter and Andrew and the other disciples who have spent their lifetime sailing on this lake, this storm was a nightmare. Waves crashed up over the side of their boat, and we read that it was beginning to fill up. They look for shore, but they can't see it, and despite their best efforts at bailing out the water, every wave brings more and more and more water on board. And in desperation, they wake up Jesus with this question in verse 38, do you not care that we are perishing? It's a scene that is hard for us to visualize, I think, even if we understand what's happening, even if we understand all the words that are here for us on this page, I think it's hard for us to really grasp the terror that these disciples felt as they struggled to keep their little boat right side up. Something that's helped me understand this passage better is a painting from 1633 by Rembrandt, which hopefully you can see. It captures a moment when this little boat is about to tip over. You can see the violence of the storm and how this boat is being lifted high on a wave before it comes crashing down again. The boat in this painting is consistent with the size of the boat that scholars think that Jesus and his disciples would have used. It is not very big. It wouldn't have cut through the waves, but would have instead been absolutely tossed around by them. And there's hardly room in it for everyone. You can see that some of the disciples are struggling with the sails. Some are holding on for dear life. One, at the very bottom, it's hard to see, is actually getting sick over the side of the boat, and one is pulling with all his strength on the rudder that is absolutely useless. Two are pleading with Jesus just to wake up. Rembrandt wanted to get across how terrifying the situation really was. This is no spring shower. It's a violent squall that even these veteran sailors are afraid of, that they think is going to take their lives from them. And with wind and waves assaulting them on all sides, they just cannot understand why Jesus is in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Their question is posed to him in a way that expects a positive answer. Like they're saying, hey, you do care, right? You do care that we're all about to die, right? It's an accusation or even a rebuke for the fact that he seems to be unbothered by what's happening, that his actions make it seem like he just doesn't actually care at all. They are simply dismayed by Jesus' attitude toward this whole thing. It's a feeling I think that we can understand. When we are upset by something, really bothered by something that's happening, for some reason, we tend to get even more upset when the people around us don't care as much as we do or as much as we think that they should. For the disciples, the stakes in this situation could not be any higher. They think that they are about to die. 
and it's really upsetting them that Jesus is so relaxed about the whole thing. So they plead with him to wake up, grab a rope or a bucket to help them out. But instead, Jesus responds to them in two very unexpected ways. First, he looks out at the water and says, peace, be still. And to the amazement of the disciples, where there was a great windstorm before, now there is only what Mark describes for us as a great calm. With only two words, Jesus dismisses the storm that until just a moment ago was so ferocious that it was about to crush their boat and drag them all to the bottom of the sea. None of them were expecting that. Secondly, Jesus turns and admonishes the disciples, asking, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus contrasts fear and faith. He treats them as opposites of one another. Even though the disciples have faith in Jesus, when that faith was confronted by a storm, it crumbled. Jesus' question, have you still no faith, is grammatically similar to the question that they asked him when they said, do you not care? Both expect a positive answer. It's like they are saying, you do care, right? And Jesus asked them, you do have faith, right? Because when crisis came, their faith in him melted. It was nowhere to be found. They thought that this storm was more than Jesus could manage. Or perhaps it was simply more than he cared to deal with. Some of us in this room can relate to that. Facing a destructive storm of one form or another in our own lives and left wondering why Jesus is sleeping through it. But fortunately for us and for the disciples, it is not the depth of our faith that makes or breaks Jesus' faithfulness to us. It is not the depth of our faith that makes or breaks Jesus' faithfulness to us. He is faithful all the same, even when our faith in him is small. So the disciples live to see another day. And having seen Jesus silence a raging storm with a simple command, they begin to look at him very differently. And they ask one another in verse 41, who is this? That Even the wind and the sea obey him. Who could do that? And now, where there was a great storm, that's been replaced by a great calm, Mark tells us that the disciples were filled with a great fear. They are exceedingly afraid, but not of a storm. They are afraid because they are beginning to realize that no matter what they thought of Jesus before, they have severely, or severely underestimated him. He is an unstoppable force, an unquantifiable power that is sitting in a 20-foot-long fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. Up to this point, Jesus has cast out demons, he has healed the sick and proclaimed things about God's kingdom. He's done the sort of things that a prophet of God might have been expected to do. In fact, we know from a little bit later in Mark that that's exactly what a lot of people thought about Jesus, that he was a prophet like Moses or Elijah, or perhaps that he was Elijah himself. But the moment that Jesus silenced a storm with a word of his own authority, not derived authority, but his own authority, the disciples realized, Elijah is not who this is. A prophet like Moses is not who this is. Throughout the Old Testament, the sea represents chaos and disorder and death and destruction. It is the implement of God's judgment, both in the flood of Noah and the annihilation of Egypt's army. 
In Job, it is described as the home of frightening and monstrous creatures. And in lots of Psalms, it's used to represent danger and disorder. The sea was an untamed, wild, and menacing force. And throughout the Old Testament, only God is able to master it. We see that often in the Old Testament. Job 26 says that it is God's power, God's power that stills the sea, no one else's. Psalm 106 explains that even though it was Moses who stood next to the Red Sea while it parted to let the Israelites across, it was God's word that made it happen. God alone has the authority to do these things. And out in the middle of the suddenly calm Sea of Galilee, the disciples are beginning to realize just who it is who is in the boat with them. And I think Mark wants us to experience that too. He wants us to get to this point in the book, amazed by Jesus, curious about him, captivated by his compassion for the downtrodden, and fascinated by his teaching, only to get here to this moment in the book and ask alongside the disciples, who is this? Who could do these things? Mark wants us to marvel at Jesus, to fear him, because we suddenly realize that he does not fit into any category or frame of reference that you have from the things in the world around you, and that no matter what you thought of him before, whether you have been following him for 40 years or you are encountering him for the first time this morning, to realize no matter what you thought of him before that you have underestimated him. I think Mark wants us to imagine ourselves in the boat, watching Waves that threaten to take us under smooth out into tranquil waters and turning to look with wonder at the one who was able to command such a thing. Rembrandt apparently thought the same thing because when he made his painting of this scene and this boat being tossed around in the storm, he actually painted himself into the boat. If you look closely at the painting, there's actually 14 people in the boat. Jesus, 12 disciples, and Rembrandt himself. Mark's gospel is designed to do this to bring us into the story and to consider who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, to be loved by him to the point of death and to worship him as our risen Savior. We are supposed to be participants in this story, and this passage helps us by revealing more of who Jesus is, to give us the same experience that the disciples had that night when they get a glimpse of who he really is and realize They thought too little of him before, specifically to show us that he rules, that he is the source of peace, and that he has no rival. First, the first thing I think this passage helps us to see is that Jesus leads his disciples into the storm. He is sovereign. This passage begins with Jesus' instruction to his disciples that they will go across the lake to the other side. And even though the disciples didn't know what would happen next, Jesus did. Many of them were used to sailing out into the middle of the lake at night, and for them this was routine. They were confident, felt that they had everything under control, but Jesus knew as he laid down for a nap what was brewing on the horizon, and he led his friends right into its path, not because he was careless, but because he loved them deeply. Back in Psalm 107, we see God doing this same kind of thing. And Psalm 107 is all about how God reveals his steadfast love in providing for what his people need the most. 
In verses 4 through 7, we read about the wanderer who is lost and cries out for help, and God provides refuge. We read about the proud and the wicked, and God provides humility so that they will cry out to the Lord for help, and that He brought them out of the darkness of the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. To, To those who turn toward Him and away from sin and rebellion, He provides forgiveness and mercy. And then we read about how God used a storm at sea to provide deliverance. In verses 23 through 26, we read that some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, of His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down into the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. In this scene, God Himself has commanded a storm to come, to raise these sailors to the sky on the heights of these waves and to bring them crashing down into the depths on their leeward side. Like the disciples in Mark 4, the people experiencing this storm in Psalm 107 were terrified. We read that their courage melted. Even though they were experienced sailors, they were used to being merchants on the sea. They had no courage in the face of this storm. The psalmist writes, they reeled and they staggered like drunk men. They were at their wit's end. They thought that all hope was lost and that their destruction was coming at any moment. But then we read in verses 28 and 29, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. God disrupted the lives of these sailors who were just going about their their business on the water, maybe as fishermen, maybe as merchants. For them, it was a typical day, an opportunity to make a living. But that changed when God commanded a storm to come, a violent, horrendous storm to come and to change everything for these people. The psalmist says that on that day, they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. When Jesus told His disciples to aim for the other side of the Sea of Galilee, He knew that everything Psalm 107 anticipated will be fulfilled that very night that they would see the deeds of the Lord and His wondrous works in the deep. That they would reel and stumble in their attempts to save themselves and that in desperation they would cry out for help and that God Himself would answer them in their distress. Jesus knew the storm was coming. In fact, I think we can even say, based on Psalm 107, that He commanded it to come in the first place so that the disciples would have the chance to see that their deliverance will come, not from their ability to make their living on the sea, but in the one who rules over the sea. I've heard sermons on this passage where the main point of the sermon is something like, Jesus calms the storms of our lives. He will see you safely through to the other side of the lake. But I just don't think that's what this passage is about. Jesus is the one who led his friends into the heart of the storm in the first place so that they would see their own weakness and their vulnerability. And then, from that low and desperate place, see the might and authority that He wields on their behalf. It is true that Jesus loves us in the middle of the storms of our lives. It is also true that He is able to see us safely through them. But it is critical that we realize that He rules sovereignly over them all, helping us to see, by His grace, what we could not see before. 
that even if we have spent our lives sailing these waters, mastering our craft, and predicting when storms will strike, we still need a rescuer. We cannot overpower the sea or the wind that sends waves crashing over the sides of our boat, but we know the one who can. So if we find ourselves in a situation that leaves us absolutely no place to turn but toward Christ, hear this, it is grace that has brought us here so that we can find true safety in His power rather than the illusion of safety in our own. The second thing that this passage reveals is that Jesus is not dismayed. He is the source of all peace. One of the most striking features of this paragraph is the contrast between the disciples and Jesus Himself. In this scene, the disciples, they were not just afraid, they were absolutely hysterical. And while they are frantically pulling on rudders and trying to manage the sails and bailing water out of the bottom of the boat, Jesus is asleep. Despite the fact that the boat is evidently moments away from sinking, Jesus is not worried. Instead, he looks out of the sea and says, peace, be still. And the sea listens to him. That doesn't work for anybody else. The disciples tried a lot of things to deal with the crisis that they were in that night. They rowed as hard as they could. They worked the sails. They probably considered jumping overboard and trying to swim for the shore. But one thing I bet they did not try was standing up and yelling at the storm because that does not work for anyone but Jesus. The best that we are able to do in the middle of a chaotic season in our life is to manage the situation the best we can and to hope for the best. It's commendable, I think, that the disciples didn't give up. They kept fighting and struggling against the wind. And it's commendable when any of us, threatened by a disaster like they were, keep fighting. But the best that they could do, the best that we can do, is hope to manage the situation and outlast the storm. To stay right side up just long enough to live out the night. When it was obvious to them that they weren't going to be able to do it, they turned to Jesus. They plead, plead with him asking, you do care, don't you? What they realize is that apart from him, everything is uncertain. Every wisp of a cloud on the horizon will produce anxiety in them. But looking to Jesus for help, everything changed. With him, clouds still loom. They are still there. Storms will still rage on the sea, but the hearts of his people are not overwhelmed. In the hearts of his people, there is peace. The struggles of our lives are real. This passage affirms the significance and the legitimacy of the storms that come crashing into our lives that make us afraid. But looking to Christ, we do not lose heart when the thunder crashes and waves threaten to fill our boat. In Christ, we are able to endure the things that would otherwise strike fear into our hearts because we look to the one who speaks and makes peace where there was only chaos before. The Apostle Paul lived this. He suffered greatly and often as he preached the gospel and planted churches. He endured physical affliction, threats to his life, isolation, abuse, imprisonment, and even storms at sea like the one we read about here in Mark 4. But then, from a jail cell, he writes to some friends, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Facing the things that make us afraid, he says, do not be overwhelmed or dismayed by them, but instead turn toward God 
in everything, he says, lift them up to God in prayer. Not because it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Paul knows firsthand, as he writes from a jail cell, that is not how this works. He doesn't tell Christians to pray because it means that suddenly things will get better and go the way that we want them to. No, he says, pray about everything because by trusting God with the things that would otherwise make us anxious, he says in verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He is the one who is able to make peace where there was only chaos before, who speaks peace and calms the anxieties of our hearts. He speaks, and storms listen to him. He makes peace in our hearts where there would otherwise be anxiety and fear. When he commands, the heavens and the earth listen. In Christ, there is peace that transcends and surpasses all of our understanding and then stands guard over us. And that is true because of our last point. Jesus rules. No matter how big the storm is, he is the king. Mark wanted his readers to know that this was a particularly ferocious storm, and he calls it a great windstorm. The word for great here is literally the, the Greek word mega. It just means large or above average intensity, and the translators of our Bibles probably could have just left the word mega here in this passage. It was a mega storm followed by a mega calm, which made the disciples then feel a mega fear. Nothing in this passage is small or subtle. Even though the Sea of Galilee is not very far across, this was the type of storm that made the disciples feel like they were in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yet, despite all that, Jesus dismisses it with two simple words. Suddenly they realize that Jesus is not merely an ambassador for God who's been sent to proclaim the coming of a kingdom, but the one who will sit the throne himself. In the middle of the storm, the disciples were incredulous with Jesus, thinking that he did not care about them or about the fact that they were about to die. They may have even thought of him as a liability since he was asleep while they were all trying to fight for their lives. They might have been irritated with him since the only reason they're in this situation in the first place is because Jesus wanted to sail to the other side. At the height of the danger, they probably wished that they had never gotten in the boat in the first place. Later on, when Jesus is arrested, the disciples will feel that same visceral fear. They will run from him to keep themselves safe, and Peter will publicly deny that he even knows Jesus for fear of his life. And as much as we might want to roll our eyes at these faithless disciples, I think that we share some of their weakness. In the fury of the storm, we wonder, like they did, if Jesus even cares, or if he's asleep while we're fighting for our lives. There is a temptation. When we are on the edge of disaster, to get angry, to blame him for the fact that we're out in the middle of this storm to begin with, or to accuse him of not loving us well enough to keep us out of its path. We remember the calm waters, the sunset cruise that our life used to be, and now with waves that are threatening to take us under, we ask, you do care, right? This matters to you, right? We feel the same weakness that the disciples felt. 
And Jesus' answer to us, definitively once and for all time, came on the day that he went to the cross. When his blood was spilled so that ours would be spared, he proved his love. When the horror of the wrath of God against sin fell on his shoulders, he proved, he proved that he cares. And when he breathed his last breath on the cross and gave his life and finished the work that set us free from sin and condemnation, he proved it. But that was not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus conquered even death itself because he has no rival. Not even death could hold him. No matter how big the storm, Jesus is bigger. So when a mega storm comes, the safest place in the whole world to be is in the boat with Jesus. The safest place in the whole world for you and me is with Jesus. Even if that means we find ourselves in the middle of a storm that threatens to destroy everything else, it will not destroy him because he is the king of all kings. So amid the storms of our own lives, we do not despair. And that, I think, is the difference that this passage makes in our lives. It helps us remember that Jesus rules over the wind and the waves that we cannot stop from coming, that he makes peace out of the chaos around us, and that the safest place to be in the middle of the storm is with him because he's been here before and he has conquered it already. So we cling to Christ, and as we do, we are able to rejoice. He is our only hope in life and in death and in the fury of the storm. Let's sing together. Pray together, and then we'll sing together. Father, we praise you this morning, and we rejoice in the love of your Son for us. He is sovereign, he is the source of peace, and he is the King of kings. He speaks, and creation listens to him, and he makes 